Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. Can I just say it? It is so stinking good to see each and every single one of you. It is so good for us to be able to gather together again, whether you're joining from all of our different locations, we're just so glad to have you back in the house, hanging out. I've missed you a ton. Uh, Before I get uh, even into my message, I have to say this. If you have not watched Jerry's sermon on Romans from last week, I cannot encourage you enough to make sure that you find time to watch it this week. You can go to this website, thecrossing.net slash watch, and click on the sermon that Jerry did on Romans. It was timely, it was inspired, and it was exactly what we needed to hear. Uh, We have a long road ahead of us as Christians who are trying to figure out a way to love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are of color, and this message helps us navigate that, and I want every single one of us to make sure that we're going on that journey. Uh, I remember just being a part of all three services last weekend and realizing that there's just so much ground we need to take. And I know that as a church, you guys wanna help us take that ground. And that um, sermon will just really kind of keep the ball moving in each and every single one of your hearts. Well, last week when I realized that we were gonna be able to actually open our locations, I was trying to encapsulate how excited I was to be able to come back to church. And I was able to draw on a memory of my young self watching, uh, walking in and seeing something happening on PBS called Lord of the Dance with Michael Flatney. And if you don't know who Michael Flatney is, he is the God of the clog. And I, uh, and out of that, I ended up posting this video for those of you who uh, haven't seen it yet. I want you guys to enjoy this little video. I said, this is gonna be like me coming back to church on Sunday. Well, then people started commenting, can't wait to see you do this on stage. Clayton dancing, cake and milk and cups. I wanna see this. I can't wait for uh, to see you up there doing this. That was not what I was anticipating. Joseph Rofe, I feel like I've seen you do that before. Then it starts to become a GoFundMe page. Biscuit's like, I'll pay you 20 bucks if you do this. Then someone says, I'll add another 20. Then someone says, do I hear 50? And the next thing I know, There are people saying, I'll donate $100 to the food pantry if you do this. And then Allison comes up to me last week and she goes, so how much money is it gonna take for you to actually do it? I'm like, Allison, it's not happening. I was literally saying, that's just how happy I'm gonna be when I show up for church. This is not me saying that when I show up for church, that that is what I'm going to do, right? You, no, stop, stop. It's not, no, stop. So, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is I'm just glad to be back in the house of the Lord because I think we've got a great opportunity.
Okay. Now, at least if you showed up for church, you'll remember that you were here. I don't know if you'll remember anything else. CrossFit cardio definitely uh, has to take me where I need to go just yet. Anyhow, one of the things that this COVID pandemic has given us is a lot of time with our family. And if we were being honest, a little too much, right? Do you remember when you brought those kids home? They just ate, slept, cried, ate, slept, cried, and you loved it. And then you wanted them to say a word, any word. Well, that's not true, guys. Just one word, right? Dada. He could say banana, and you're like, I think he said dada, right? We did whatever we could. And then your kids hit that age where they won't stop talking. And they learn another word. They learned the word why. I'm telling you, nobody can make you feel more dumb than a kid who's learned the word why. I don't think the smartest person on earth cannot handle six consecutive whys from a kid, right? You, maybe you've had this happen to you. You come in from mowing, you're going to grab yourself a glass of water, and you go, man, it's hot outside. And your kid goes, why? Well, well because the sun produces heat. Well, because the sun's out. Why? Well, because the sun produces heat. Why? Well, because the sun's full of explosive gases and when they burn up, it sends heat through the atmosphere and it lands here on earth. But the sun's out in the winter, why isn't it hot then? Okay, well, it's because of the Earth's rotational orbit and it's spinning on its axis and the tilt, and uh, that's why. Well, well, why is that? Well, it's because God made it that way. Why? I don't know. You'll, you'll have to ask him, and if you don't start being nicer to your brother, you'll never find out, right? You just, you just bail. You can't survive more than six why questions. And then uh, your kid goes from talking all the time to the teenage years where you just wish you could get them to talk to you. And then right after that comes the final exam. When your kid leaves your house to go off to college or to go start a new adventure and work somewhere and you're wondering, all the parenting, all the coaching, all the teaching, all the discipline, all the memories, is my kid ready to go off and face the world on their own and make the right decisions? I, I don't know about you, but maybe you know somebody who they were a pretty good person when they lived in their parents' house, and then they went off to college, and they made some pretty dumb decisions. If you know somebody who made a dumb decision in college, put your hand up at all of our locations. Not necessarily you, but you've heard stories of dumb people in college, right? The statistics on the amount of people who make a life-changing, horrible decision in the first six months of college is crazy. First Corinthians is a story, or is a letter written to a church that went off to college. Paul started this church in the town of Corinth, 
Corinth was a beautiful and magnificent town. It was littered with palm trees and beautiful buildings. It was the center of pleasure for the entire empire. It housed the temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. It was the Las Vegas of the empire. It's where you went to have a really good time. And Paul spends 18 months growing and birthing this church and then he goes off to do other mission work. And in his absence, he starts to get letters and reports about all that is happening inside the Corinthian church and it is appalling and it is heartbreaking. And so he writes this letter to address the issues that are happening in the church. There are five big issues inside the Corinthian church. The first one is an issue of divisions. Uh, in that time, people would associate a high level of allegiance and fanaticism to a particular philosopher. It was the Greek way. They would like the way this philosopher put things and so they would attach a great deal uh, of their lives to that particular person and their strain of thought. Imagine you taking your favorite baseball team, football team, soccer team, your favorite author, and you creating a high level of fanaticism over that person, but take that same level of fanaticism and apply it to people in the church. Where now you've got that level of fanaticism about an author, a blogger, your favorite female Christian uh, book writer, uh, who you follow on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Maybe you take it even closer into church where you've got your favorite preacher and your favorite worship leader and your favorite staff member and you rate yourself by whether or not you have access to one staff member versus another. You wanna be at church when this person preaches but not when that person preaches. Paul writes to these people and says, stop. First Corinthians three, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So while you may appreciate a particular communicator or a particular worship band, I need you to understand, do not attach your fanaticism to that particular person. Realize that God is using that person to either plant a seed or to water a seed because God is the one who's ultimately trying to make you grow. God is responsible for the growth. I've had people come up to me before and say, I think uh, this church is getting too big. And I'm like, well, who would you like God to kick out? Because he's the one who's growing it. So who do you want him to kick out? God is the one who is ultimately responsible for the growth 
the baptisms, the life change, the intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ that so many of us get to experience. But check this out. We get to partner with him. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. We are co-workers in God's service. So while God is responsible for the growing, he allows us to participate in the sowing of the seed and the watering it, which means that we get to help be a part of expanding and growing the kingdom of God. He says, don't get bogged down into who's your favorite. Spend your time using your life to help people find a relationship with Jesus. Don't attach someone to a particular singer or a particular author, attach somebody, point somebody to Jesus, the second problem in the church. Now, this is a toughie, because when we planned on this sermon series, this was before uh, this was all gonna happen, and uh, I was expecting all of your little ones to be in another room. So, at all of our locations, and you look really uh, right here, I'm gonna use a term called honeymoon activities. We good? Nod your head if you understand what I'm saying. If you have to explain that, that when you get home, I've at least given you a better on-ramp, okay? Here is the second issue that is happening inside of the church. Like I said, Corinth housed the, the temple to the Greek goddess of Aphrodite. And uh, part of her worship was the performance of honeymoon activities. In fact, there were 10,000 priestesses who were female women who you could go to church or the temple, that temple, and you could um, have honeymoon activities with them as an expression of worship to the God of Aphrodite. And so the culture there is advocating for, promoting, pushing a uh, do as much with as many, as often, in as weird of ways, uh, honeymoon activities as you possibly can. And here is the church stuck in the middle going, what do we do? Well, what ends up happening is the stuff in the culture started to weave its way into the church. There's a guy who um, is starting to have um, honeymoon activities with his stepmom. And Paul has to say, hey guys, that's a no-no. And they're like, oh, okay. And then there are people who are um, showing up for church on Sunday, and uh, then they are going to the temple of Aphrodite on Monday. And let's just be honest. If that was what the service was like, I'm guessing some people visited there on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays. And so all of a sudden inside the church, you're having people acting for God for one day and then living for Aphrodite on another. And then there are uh, people who are so repulsed by what they're seeing out in culture that they have decided to stop having honeymoon activities with their own spouse. And so you have women no longer engaging in those activities with their husband, and you have husbands who are choosing not to have those activities with their spouse. We don't have that problem today, do we? Where what happens in the culture is weaving its way into the church. It happens when a man is emotionally unavailable to his wife, 
but he spends the entire week flirting with a coworker. It happens when a woman is never willing to give words of encouragement and affirmation to her husband, but she can't stop doting over the guy at work. Uh, it happens when people who, instead of working really hard to figure out a way to have honeymoon activities with their spouse, settle for watching other people have honeymoon activities on their phone. Some of you, you're too clever for that. Uh, what you do is you just follow people on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter who take lots of pictures in outfits that look like somebody who's about ready to engage in honeymoon activities. There are people right now, guys, I'm gonna, let me say hello to you for just a second. There are guys in all of our locations that you would rather give up your bass boat, your gun collection, and your golf clubs than give your wife your phone. It's probably because deep down inside you know that if she uh, got your phone, she would end up taking the bass boat, the gun collection, and the golf clubs in the divorce, right? Okay, so then, then inside of this, there are Christian people who are depriving their spouse of honeymoon activities. And Paul goes on to talk about, hey, 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 guys, your body does not belong to you Guys, your body belongs to your wife. And then he goes, hey, ladies, ladies, your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to your husband. I hate saying this, but this is Jennifer's body. I know, she should lose some weight. That's, that's why I've been taking her body to CrossFit, because it needs some improvements, right? This body does not belong to me. This body belongs to her. In all of my years of ministry, when people come into my office for counseling, do you just want to, just want me to tell you something? I've never had a couple come in who had serious problems, who had a healthy uh, honeymoon life. I'll tell you one of the reasons why. Uh, Paul goes on to say inside of this that when you deprive each other of honeymoon activities, it gives Satan a foothold in your home. He says, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Some of you just found out that you were in a season of prayer and your spouse forgot to tell you, <laughs> right? You're just like, I didn't know we were praying. I wish you'd have just said something to me, right? But listen, you can set it aside for a special time of prayer. I'm guessing none of you have had the prayer conversation, right? But he says only for a time so that Satan will not tempt you. I have seen men who will go and get their concealed carry license, who will take Saturdays to go and shoot at a range to make sure that if anybody ever shows up at their house, they're ready to Chuck Norris them. They're waiting for that moment. And I've seen moms figure out all kinds of different ways to make sure that all the different passwords are synced up exactly the way they're supposed to so that their kids don't see the awful stuff coming across the screen. And they're doing it to protect their kids. And just so you know, it's like you've shut all the windows, but you left the door wide open. One of the best gifts that you can give your kids, just saying this, is to have a healthy honeymoon relationship with your spouse. 
Now, here's what I want you to do when you go home. Everybody's like, ooh, maybe we are glad we came to church today. <laughs> maybe this wasn't a bad one. Okay, listen, because I don't know the specifics of all the issues that are going on in your marriage, I'm gonna let you decide what this should look like. But at the very least, here is a great Clayton pro tip. Just do enough to gross out your kids. I mean it. Just be like, I'm about to gross you out, son. Come here, wife. And give her a big kiss. Because I'll tell you what, it sends a message to your kids that dad loves mom and mom loves dad. And maybe grossing your kids out in the kitchen will lead to you making a kid later on, okay? Here's the goal is because there is something that happens inside of both the husband and the wife when you do not pay close attention to this. Here's the third issue. The church is having, taking too much personal liberty. The Corinthian church was taking all of their freedom in Christ and they were using it as a permission slip to do whatever they want, regardless of how it might impact the people around them. It didn't just impact the people who were in the church, it also impacted the people who were outside of the church. And so Paul says, listen guys, stop doing this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 8, be careful however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating at an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weaker brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, look at this, you sin against Christ. You are not just sinning against your brother or sister in Christ, you are sinning against Christ himself. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Here's what he's saying. Just because you have the right doesn't mean you should impose that right. Just because you have the freedom of speech doesn't mean you should say everything you think. Do I have you? Are you still with me? That was a good one. You should take that home. Here, let me do a different one. Just because you can post doesn't mean you, you should. 1 Corinthians 10 says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is everybody at all of our locations. Say that word, beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of, uh, yeah. Now let's be honest, most of us are not dealing with meat sacrificed to idols. You're not showing up at Chick-fil-A and asking if the waffle fries spent any time on the altar to the goddess Aphrodite. That's never come across, that's, that word has never been spoken by you. But here's what it means. Let me take it closer home. Just because you have the right to watch a movie, don't ruin your witness by walking into the theater. Just because you have the right to have a beer means that maybe you shouldn't post about it to where all the people that are in recovery see it. Just because you have the money to buy the nicest car on the lot, maybe you shouldn't buy it because it might hurt your witness to the people you're trying to reach. Now listen, this is not, hear me, this is not societally imposed where I have to get permission from you about what I eat, drink, or drive. That's not what this is about. This is about me surrendering the rights that I have to reach people I wanna reach. You tracking with me? It's where I give up my rights to take care of my responsibility. You wanna know a perfect example of this? 
Jesus. Jesus had the right. He had the right to be treated as a king when he came here to earth, but he chose to forego those rights so he could take on the responsibility of being my savior. He gave up his kingship and he suffered as a servant so that you and I could have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It means I want you to think about the people that you're trying to reach and go, what are things in me that need to change so that I can reach them, so that I can minister to them? I'm ready to give up my rights because I have a responsibility to that people group. And your group might be different than my group, which means that I might not have certain liberties that you allow yourself, but that doesn't mean we're not brothers and sisters in Christ. It just means we're trying to reach different people for Christ. Number four, the Corinthian church, when they sewed up for church, it was a bunch of nut jobs. They were acting a fool. They were acting crazy. It was like competition. Who has the best gift and who has the coolest gift? And well, it's all talk over the top of each other. And it became an absolute mess. People were getting drunk during communion. People were eating so much that there wasn't enough communion for everybody else to have any. They were showing up and one guy's trying to talk and then another person starts talking in songs and then another person's like, I have a solo. I want you all to listen to it. And he's like, stop. Each of you have your own gift and you need to use it the way God intended it. And he says, when you come to church, if you have a gift, you need to use it. And some people are like, well, I've got the greatest gift. And Paul's like, no, your gift is just a gift. And if it wasn't for the other gifts propping your gift up, your gift would be of no value. There's some people going, well, my gift isn't good. And God's going, no, I gave you that gift. That gift is perfect and it will be perfectly expressed in you. And you not using the gift that God gave you and coveting a gift that he gave somebody else is to look at God and say, God, you messed up. He says, listen, when you show up, use your gift, leverage it. There's people inside the church who become so mature that they'll say things like this which is an oxymoron. Mature people never say, I need to go someplace else where I can get fed. Mature people can worship to a song that they've sung a thousand times. A mature believer can endure a service that doesn't necessarily scratch their itch because Paul says the service is not about you. It is for the people around you. I can sing a song that I sang on Thursday, and I can sing a song that I sang during first service. I can sing it again on second service. Even though I've sang the song three times, I can still sing it because somebody hasn't before. Just because I've heard a bunch of sermons on X doesn't mean I can't sit through it, figure out a way to learn from it, but also realizing that there's other people that have never heard it before. If ladies, if your 40 year old son walks up your stairs from your basement and says, mom, make me something, and you cut him a, get, make him a steak, and then you cut it for him, and then you feed him, that son of yours is not a mature person because mature people can feed themselves. You don't have a man in your house. You have a boy in a man's body. Spiritual people realize that it is not about them and they are there for the mutual edification of the people around them. The fifth problem that the Corinthian church has is the issue of the resurrection. They believe that this life is all that there is. And Paul says, no, 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 no. There is a resurrection. 
There is a resurrection. There will come a time where those who have fallen asleep will be raised, where Christ will come back and we will spend eternity in heaven. This is not all there is. He says, listen, if the resurrection isn't true, if Christ is not raised, then nobody's raised. If Christ isn't raised, you and I, we are still in our sins. He says, if Christ is not raised, we are to be pitied more than all people. Because here we are spending our lives trying to tell people about a Jesus who really is no savior. If there's no resurrection, Jesus was just a really good teacher and miracle worker who died on a cross. What separates us is we believe that after he died, three days later, he rose. At the end of all of this, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, I want you to be steadfast. I want you to have courage. I want you to be, uh, be firm in your faith. I want you to be courageous and I want you to be strong. And then he says, do everything in love. If I was gonna tell you any verse to memorize, it would be that one. I'm gonna say it all again, put it back up on the screen for just a second. First Corinthians 16, and this is your take home verse. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Do everything in love. The answer to the five issues that the Corinthian church is facing is love. Instead of division, choose love. Instead of acting out sexually, choose love. And you can't love a person you're objectifying. You can't love a person that you're cheating on and you can't love a person you're cheating with. You can't love a person that you're withholding from. He goes on to say, listen, when it comes to your gift, you can't love people if you don't leverage your gift to take care of them, to help them grow, to help them be the person that they're supposed to be. And then he goes in to describe what love looks like. And he uses, the, the, he uses almost this poetry in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, you will never find two dumber people than a couple getting ready to get married on their wedding day, right? Would you guys all agree? They're just sitting at their dopey eyed going, we're gonna be in this forever and we're gonna do this better than anybody else. And everybody else in the audience is like, wait till you have to fold the towels, right? <laughs> wait, wait till you vacuum the wrong way, brother, right? We all know better, we're like, you're in for it. But this is what it says. Love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres that the Christian ethic, that like our mascot, our team colors, our number on our jersey, our name on the back of the jersey, that when someone interacts with another Christian, the predominant thing that they take away from that interaction is that person was loving. Well, how loving are we supposed to be to people? Well, let me put it this way, love is patient. So how patient am I supposed to be with people? Well, how patient has Jesus been with you? That patient. How kind am I supposed to be to people, Clayton? Great question. How kind has Jesus been with you? How many wrongs am I supposed to forgive, Clayton? Well, how many wrongs has Jesus 
forgiven you. God, Jesus goes out of his way all the time to call us, to impose on us, to compel us to be a people who are known and defined by our love. And I, I think deep down inside, the whispering part of your head says to yourself, I wanna be a part of that kind of people. I wanna be a part of a group of people that love. But love requires effort. Love is not easy. But I believe deep down in my heart that this church wants to do the hard work, that we wanna ask ourselves the question, what is love gonna require of me? Have you ever got on an airplane and realized how funky people are? Like when I go to the doctor, I try to be the skinniest version of myself. But when I get on a plane, I become the heaviest version of myself. Because when I sit down and then they say over the speaker system, oh, we've got a full flight today. There's only gonna be about one or two seats available. So we're gonna need everybody to make a little bit of space so that way everybody can have a seat. I immediately go from this person to this person, right? I'm so big that when I sit in airplane seats, I get the can of biscuits where like the, the armrest grabs your shirt, pulls, untucks it, and puts your fat out so people can see it. That's what happens to me. And every time I hop on a plane, I have the ability to turn atheists into theists. Because when I walk onto a plane, this is uh, what happens. I walk into all planes like this. And then I walk down the thing like this, trying to move myself through. And people, even if they're atheists, start praying, dear God, please don't let that guy sit next to me. Right? I am so big that when I get on certain planes, they, uh, they, they put me in a special seat. So that way the plane stays level. Tell you what, you wanna talk about a confidence booster. Uh, sir, we need to keep the plane level, so we're gonna have you sit right there, okay? Now, so I try to get, uh, I can't afford first class, and I used to think to myself, I would never fly first class because it's too expensive. I'm, uh, I'm changing my mind on that, FYI, I just need you to know. And I would walk past all the first class people and I'd walk back to where all the you know, second class citizens are located. And I always try to get the exit row seat. Have, have, raise your hand if you've ever been able to sit in an exit row seat. If you are not over 250 pounds, shame on you, okay? And if you're not over six feet, shame on you. Because those seats are reserved for poor, bigger people. And uh, sometimes I can't get up early enough to get that seat. And for those of you who don't know this, there's something special that happens uh, in, a, in, a, in a plane that nobody, very few people know about. Here's why you fly first class. I haven't been able to do it. One of these days I will. Because in the event of an emergency, a trained professional opens the exit doors for first class people. The flight attendants get up who've been trained and they open the door and make sure all you first class people can get out. But back in, Back where the cattle are kept? It's whoever just clicked the button at 2 a.m. That's who's opening the door for you. And one time, uh, you know, imagine you walk onto the plane and a guy comes down the aisle and he's just a real, real short fella. And uh, he, he can't lift his bag and put it up in the overhead bin. He's just too tiny. And so he asks you to do it. And so you, you put it up there for him and he goes and sits in the exit row. And then a big manatee of a fella comes in. Just, I mean, a guy who doesn't even know what color his pants are, just a big old dude comes walking in and he sits in the other seat. 
And after they've done all the, in the event of an emergency, the um, bags will come down and make sure you secure it for yourself before you help everybody else around you. And then they talk you through your flotation device. Here's what happens after the big loudspeaker thing, they do a secret meeting. The flight attendant comes out real quiet, big smile on her face. She looks at all the exit row people. Hey, hi, you guys doing good? You feel okay? All right. Well, in the event that this plane falls out of the sky, everybody around here is dependent on you. Do you think you can open that big, heavy door? And the little guy, mini-me over here, is like, and the manatee over here is going, and I'm one behind him going, not a chance. <laughs> there is not a chance. I put his bag up for him, and that dude won't fit through that door. <laughs> you know what they don't do? They don't ask everybody else on the plane, are we okay with those two people? <laughs> now, if the plane was all that mattered, if that was all that there is, it wouldn't matter to me. But I know that there is life beyond the plane. So while this bigger fella's popping some pills and drinking some beers, I'm ordering everything off the menu that has butter in case I have to grease this fool up before I send him out, right? Does that guy, listen, does that guy, does that guy have the right to sit there? Yeah. But the loving thing is to realize that everybody else is looking to you, crossing church, as Christians, we sit in the exit row and people didn't get a vote on whether or not we would be their witness. They didn't get a vote as to whether or not we would be their example for what life after death looks like. But there we are sitting in the exit row and I want us to wear that responsibility well and you wear it well with love. We're moving to a time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.